0: Well, from time to time at a Lord's Supper service, we will take the opportunity to go a little deeper on a theme or perhaps uh, in a passage um, from which we were just talking about in the previous Sunday sermon. And so I'd like to do that tonight. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. Use those table of contents in the beginning of your Bible if you need to find it. And remember that on Sunday, we were in Matthew five seventeen to 48. There, Jesus, we saw, fulfills the law, yes, but he also fills out his expectations for his kingdom citizens. He said in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a lofty statement. That's a lofty requirement. And then remember, in verses 21 to 48, Jesus gives us six different ethical examples using the same formula each time. You have heard it said, and then he quotes briefly from the Old Testament, followed by him saying, But I say unto you, And then he teaches on that very topic, but he teaches more inwardly and more upwardly than anything the Old Testament had in mind, at least in that one passage that he quotes. Now, I didn't say explicitly on Sunday, but I will now, that Matthew 5, in these higher More inward commands from Jesus assume what we call the New Covenant. The New Covenant. Even though the New Covenant is not explicitly mentioned in Matthew 5, I think it is clearly in view, and we should have it in view. And so I thought it would be good for us to go to the supreme passage of the Old Testament which predicted that... New Covenant, so that we can see that Jesus is assuming in this inner transformation of kingdom people, where ethics work from the heart outward, this is all part of the New Covenant. Five and a half centuries before Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, the prophet Jeremiah foretold the coming day of the New Covenant. Look down, Jeremiah 31 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is a big deal in the Bible. The new covenant should be a big deal for Christians. Here we are at a Lord's Supper service. And what did Jesus say when he gave his disciples... The cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, referring to our passage, Jeremiah 31. The book of Hebrews unpacks the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant over three whole chapters, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. It's kind of a big deal. Or if you think of what is on the page before Matthew in your English Bibles, it says what? New Testament. What does testament mean? New covenant. We've labeled the second half of our Bibles New Covenant. Testament's just a different word for it. It's kind of a big deal. In these few verses in Jeremiah 31 that I just read for us, actually often get referred to in sermons around here. I went through I went looking through my records and on average I'd say I refer to Jeremiah 31 roughly about 6 times per year in the sermons I preach around here. Refer to it. Looking through my records, I found I've never preached the passage. It's never been a primary passage, a sermon text for us, at least since I've been here almost 19 years now. So we'll look at it tonight. I have five headings to help us think through this important topic and important passage. Here's the first, the need for the new covenant. The need for the new covenant. This this prophecy, this promise of its coming in Jeremiah 31 doesn't come out of nowhere no there's this growing need for it and really i mean we could take it all the way back to the fall and say there's the need for a new covenant or you could think of the days in moses's time where the people well they stubbornly disobeyed the lord moses grew in frustration toward the end of his life in the book of deuteronomy Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, he called on the people, circumcise the foreskins of your heart. Remember, circumcision was a symbol of cutting off the flesh. It didn't literally cut off the flesh. That's the problem. It symbolized what they needed, but what circumcision could never provide. And so Moses, in frustration, is saying, why don't you circumcise your hearts for crying out loud? And you can imagine the frustration on the receiving end. How do we do that? How how do you get in there? How do you cut that off? We can't perform spiritual open heart surgery. Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses is still on this topic. He says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he he gives a word of hope. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Oh, there's hope. The Lord will do it. But when? That's Moses. There's a lot of Old Testament, which means there's a lot... Of stories of, well, some highlights and mostly lowlights of the sins of the Old Testament saints. You think of those occasional covenant renewal ceremonies that we find in the Old Testament which didn't stick. They never stuck. It never worked. Exodus 34 is one. 1 Samuel 12 is another. 1 Chronicles 29, the people are confronted, the people repent, their leader leads them in a covenant renewal. We promise this time, Lord, we will do it. We will be your people. We will do what you say. And at that very moment, well, it's something to be celebrated. This is good. And the more you get used to this kind of stuff in your Bibles, the more you get cynical about those moments because the next chapter usually doesn't go so well. You keep fast-forwarding hundreds of years, and you get to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And they begin saying to the people that because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the wickedness of their ways, because of their stubborn refusal to go the way of their God and their flirtation with other gods, God's judgment is going to come in a severe way. This is when the prophets begin announcing the exile or what's called the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is where Jeremiah steps onto the scene. He's a pre-exilic prophet, pre-exile. He's warning of what's to come, but he's also seeing some stuff on the other side. Before he sees the stuff on the other side, you've got Jeremiah 1 through 28, which is almost all rebuke. It's prophetic rebuke and promise of exile and judgment. You get to chapter 29, verse 11 of Jeremiah, and some of you have this on a calendar in your house or on a mug in your cupboard. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord your God. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope that fits nicely on a mug or a calendar, but that was really specific. That was, a, it was God's promise to Israel to do them good after the exile. But then you get to chapter 31, and the word of hope begins to blossom into something more than just good days after the exile. God says, I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. Finally, a new covenant. A different kind of covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, And here he's referring to the covenant made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law. It's a law, a covenant that he made with them when he led them out of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, he says. So it's a breakable covenant, it's not a lasting covenant, and it's contrasted with the new covenant. There's a new covenant coming, and it's not like the old. And these days of the new covenant are coming, Jeremiah announced. And again, raising the question, like Deuteronomy, when? When, Lord, when? And the Old Testament story isn't yet done. You think of... What we have in our Bibles, of course, isn't like the last book, but the Nehemiah is sort of the last narrative book of our Old Testaments. So it's the end of the Old Testament story. What do we find there? Well, the return of the saints to Jude to Jerusalem. You've got that wonderful chapter, Nehemiah 8, of the reading and the preaching of the law, the people worshiping and weeping, You've got Nehemiah 9, a chapter of repentance. This is looking good. Maybe here comes the new covenant. Chapters 10 through 12 of Nehemiah. It's one of those covenant renewal ceremonies. We know the last ones haven't gone so well, but maybe this one will stick. And it doesn't. Nehemiah 13 shows us the sinful mayhem of the people in full orb. Nehemiah literally is pulling people's hair out in Nehemiah 13. Not pulling his own hair out. I know that's a saying. He is literally pulling people's hair out because of their sin and his frustration. That's the need for the new covenant. That's the situation. Add to it 400 years of prophetic silence. That's the dire, desolate situation to which Jesus the Messiah comes. Now let's look secondly at the promises of the new covenant. It's in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34 give us four different promises of the new covenant. You could find them and identify them on your own, but let's take them one at a time. There's an internalized law. Verse 33, internalized law. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. That passage read for us on Sunday in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3, which contrasted Old Covenant and New Covenant, spoke of the law of the Old Covenant written on what? Tablets of stone. Hear the contrast there? not that the Ten Commandments were bad. No, they had their purpose, but they didn't have any power. They didn't produce life in themselves. It was laws outside the people written on cold tablets of stone that would soon be broken by Moses. And some scholars, like John Owen, thought that that was a a foreshadow of the breaking of the covenant that would come. The Mosaic covenant, carved into tablets of stone, was good in its day, it had its purpose, yes, but now God says, one day soon, through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. Or as Drew began our service, from Ezekiel 36, there God says, I'll give you a new heart, taking out the old heart, putting in a new heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. That's referring to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. All that, in Jeremiah 31, we can just call it an internalized law. He puts it within us. He changes our desires. He gives us the ability and the, the desire to do his will, unlike the covenant before. A second promise of the New Covenant we could call a personal relationship. Verse 33, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's personal. That's a relationship. It's permanent. A personal relationship. That's different. At least different in degree, different somewhat in kind from the Old Covenant. A third promise we could call complete covenant inclusion. That's a mouthful. What's it mean? Complete covenant inclusion. Well, I get it from verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Let me explain what's going on here and then I'll be able to explain to you what I mean by a complete covenant inclusion. In the Old Covenant, you had to distinguish between those who were Jewish by way of ancestry and circumcision but weren't forgiven. They weren't reconciled to God. They didn't do so well at following God's ways. Paul speaks of this difference in Romans 9 verse 6 where he says not all who are descended from israel are of israel so he's using israel in two different ways there there's ethnic israel that's everyone ethnically israel who's in the in the covenant by way of circumcision but not every one of those is actually of israel of god's people going God's way the old covenant then was a mixed company covenant, two different kinds of people, and so you would often have this dynamic happening within the old covenant spoken of in verse 34 one would have to still teach their neighbor, you'd still have to say to your brother grab him by the lapels, know the Lord they didn't they knew of Him. They didn't know Him. They'd been taught some things, but they hadn't been taught. The very nature of the new covenant, though, changes. The nature of the covenant changes. So who comprises the covenant changes in the new covenant. The new covenant is not a mixed company covenant like the old covenant was. Or to put it in a mouthful, it was a complete covenant inclusion. That's what verse 34 is getting at. The nature of the covenant has changed. The recipients of the covenant have changed. Now it's not a mixed company covenant. It's an all-in, all-inclusive, covenant-included covenant. And the last promise. Is lasting forgiveness. At the end of verse 34 I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That's not to say that there was never forgiveness of any Old Testament saints before the possibility of the new covenant coming along. No, there was forgiveness. But again, in this covenant, there's forgiveness for everyone in it. There aren't people in the covenant who aren't yet forgiven. Which leads us then to the third heading of Jeremiah 31. The implications of the new covenant. The implications of it. Here I have a few. First, I want us to think about the recipients of the sign of the covenant. I know, again, a mouthful, right? What I mean is, because of the change in the nature of the covenant from Old Covenant, to New Covenant, because of the change in the recipients of the covenant in the new covenant. The recipients of the covenant sign changes well. By covenant sign, I mean in the old circumcision and in the new baptism, at least as the initiating covenant sign. In the old covenant, Who received the covenant sign of circumcision? Every Jewish male. You didn't wait for faith. You didn't wait for their faith to become their own, to give them the covenant sign. They got the covenant sign by virtue of the fact that mom and dad were in the covenant, and God did that covenant with them and their children. So today, this side of the cross our baby-baptizing friends, paedobaptists or Presbyterians, would take that idea, the covenant sign on the children, right over into the new covenant, and so all babies, born in families of believers, get baptized. The sign is for the children of the covenant in both the old and the new, they say. And this is what John Calvin taught And John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and a bunch of other people even today that we would uh, really appreciate their teaching but we believers baptism types like we are here at Desert Springs Church we would humbly suggest that the nature of the Covenant has changed and that's why the recipients of the Covenant are now limited to those who believe It's a covenant package. It's all in. If they're forgiven, if they have a law written on their hearts, that's who gets the covenant signed now. No longer will you have to say in this covenant, Know the Lord! They shall all know me. So Peter's sermon in Acts 2 becomes a debate among those who would baptize babies and those who would only baptize believers. And in Acts 2, verse 39, Peter says this. Listen, he says, The promise is for you and your children. Oh, well that sounds like baptized babies then, right? I mean, he's picking up that old language of you and your children. Yeah, but he goes on to say, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you and your children, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Which means he may call some of our children, perhaps all of our children, perhaps none of our children. If he does not call them, then we should not put that covenant seal of baptism upon them. That's one implication of the new covenant. More happy and hopeful and encouraging is just the assurance of it. The the promise of it. God emphatically saying throughout it, I will, I will. It's unilateral. He'll do it. He accomplishes it. Phrases like, no longer. There's no going back. Once he enacts this, There's no going back to the old ways. There's no covenant renewal necessary. I will remember their sins no more. And that has already come to us in Jesus Christ if we believe in Him. That is all that. All of that is right now available to everyone who would believe in this Jesus. Not just forgiveness, but relationship. Not just reconciliation, but transformation. A complete package, all-inclusive for everyone in the new covenant, from the least of them to the greatest. So yeah, remember Matthew 5. Jesus calls us to a high standard as his kingdom citizens. He calls us to the proper heart motives for our actions as his kingdom citizens. But in the new covenant, by his spirit, he also provides the means by which it happens. He provides the power by which it's accomplished. So remember John Bunyan's old poem. I've quoted this before. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids you fly and gives you wings. Or we could modify it slightly to say, run, John, run, the old covenant commanded, but gave them neither feet nor hands. Far better news the new covenant brings, it bids us fly. Fly. And it actually gives us wings. And so, another implication here is glory to God. Praise God. He's done it, it's come. The wait is over. The growing inability and frustration, and those looming promises that went unfulfilled throughout those Old Testament days, Jesus came to bring to reality, and he did. So all credit goes to him. All thanks and praise goes to God. And how privileged we are to stand in this era where we can have a full package kind of grace like this. That doesn't mean our responsibility to those commandments and even those right motives goes out the window yes he'll do it but he does it in and through us he does it not apart from our wills he doesn't bypass us he he doesn't just you know uh, do a reboot while we're sleeping and improve us to a 2.0 and a 3.0 it's it's through bible and prayer and gathering as a church and singing songs and rehearsing truth over and over and over and over again that we get more attuned to his ways, more attuned to what Jesus calls us to do. It begins, hopefully, to feel a little more natural all the time. And yet there's that whole now and not yet dynamic. Let's not forget that. The new covenant is now. It has come. We partake of the cup of the new covenant tonight. And yet the new covenant will only be fully realized in a new heaven and a new earth. That's why Revelation 21 speaks of a a new heaven that John sees like this. They now will be his people. He will be their God. It's the language of the new covenant. Now fully realized in a whole new heaven and new earth. Now where sin is no more. Now where righteous desires are fully realized and never frustrated by sinful desires. But until that day, until that new heaven and new earth, all the redeemed on this earth will wrestle with sin. That's the not yet. And yet, it's as good as done. That's why we can talk about the now. And that's true of everyone who believes, even when it feels so weak within their hearts, so small upon their wills, even when it feels like the new covenant must not be true for them. No, Sometimes we feel more, not yet. And other times, praise God, we feel a little bit of the now. It's come, it's here. That's the nature of this pilgrimage we're on. We're not home yet. We keep stepping. The fourth thing for us to consider is the mediator of the new covenant. The mediator. Let's not forget that. Jesus is not only the one who ushers in the age of the new covenant, he is the one who accomplishes all the promises. And how did he do that? But on the cross. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we find a mediator of a new covenant. And Hebrews goes to town on this theme. Hebrews 9 says, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So, those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Hebrews 10 speaks of the confidence that we can have to now enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us. Hear that language of new and living way, that's the language of the new covenant. Or Hebrews 12 speaks of how we all have now come to Mount Zion a spiritual city. We've now come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We are are now in the presence of innumerable angels in festal gathering. We are now within the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We have now come to God the judge and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There would be no new covenant without Jesus as the one to bring it as the mediator to accomplish it. And lastly, we come to something we've already talked about briefly, but here it is explicitly. The meal of the new covenant. That's why we're here tonight, the meal of the new covenant. Because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Eat. Eat. Do this in remembrance of me. When that was done, he gave them the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we're here tonight. We need to remember him. We need to remember what he did. Oh, we we haven't totally forgotten it as Christians, but we're forgetful people. We forget its power, we forget its significance, we forget its surety, we forget its its implications, we forget its cost. And so he's given us this meal to symbolize his broken body and his spilled blood, his life and his death. And we remember by looking upon the elements and seeing not our Savior's body, Not our Savior's blood. Oh, no. That work has already been done. It's finished. But as memorials of his broken body and spilled blood, we visibly look upon these things to remember the tangibleness of it, the reality of it. He really did come. He really did live. He really did bleed. He really was raised. He did it for us. We remember that this was for us. This is ours. Just as we partake of the bread, putting it in our mouths, digesting it down. Just as we take of the cup, putting it in, soaking it up. So that's what we've done with Christ. We've taken of Him. We've taken Him deep down. We've taken it without cost, without price. We remember afresh that all of our hope is outside of us. It's in His finished work. We we remember in faith that partaking of this meal tonight is, is a proclamation to ourselves and to the world what we've come to believe and what we've come to trust in. This is all our hope. Jesus' finished work. Just take it in. Just eat it up for free. That's our testimony. That's what we believe. Tell it to yourself afresh tonight. Preach to yourself through the elements tonight. This is our message to the world. Him, Him alone, His death and resurrection. And we just keep doing this as forgetful people who keep reminding ourselves and each other. We keep doing it until He comes. As He says, until He comes. This is our meal of remembrance. And in all this, we remember this is all part of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is the meal that he gave us to remember the whole new covenant package, not just the cross, not just waiting for his coming, but the promise of Jeremiah five and a half centuries before Jesus walked this earth. And so if you have that covenant, if you're in that covenant, if you know that forgiveness, if you believe however small he's written it on your heart, the law has been written on your heart and you desire to do his will, If you believe that tonight, then we would welcome you to partake with us. If not, if that's not you, if you say, New Covenant, I don't know if I'm in or out. How do you get a membership card? Well, we need to talk more. And this meal is not for you just yet. This meal is for those who are in the covenant, who know the covenant, and know the Lord of the covenant. If that's not you tonight, as others get up in just a bit, we'd ask you just to stay seated. That's all right. People around you will barely notice, if at all. But perhaps in due course, the Lord will not only forgive you, not only write his law in your hearts, not only become your God and you his people, but you will regularly enjoy this meal of remembrance with us in days ahead.